Where does one go to seek the Lord? Where does one go to seek God's presence? Where is the God of the Bible found? This seemingly simple question elicits many different answers. Ask a pagan, and they may say that God is found in the great outdoors. I think most Oregonians, unfortunately, are pagans. It's just a joke. Ask a Jew, and they may say Jerusalem. Ask a Catholic, and they may say the Vatican or Rome. Many people might say that they have most felt God's presence at a worship night or a conference. The question is, where does one go to seek the Lord? I believe that our text for this morning in Deuteronomy 11 and 12 will help us get to the bottom of this question. But to assist in this search, we need some help. And since the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible, we start here in John 4. And it's here that I believe that Jesus will actually assist us and help us to understand what we're going to learn in Deuteronomy 11 and 12. He's going to help us answer the question, where does one go to seek the Lord? And so we begin with this story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. Now, let me help you understand and unpack this story a little bit so that it can transition well into Deuteronomy 11. I want to give you some background here about the Samaritans and about the conversation that's going on between Jesus and this woman. First, you've got to understand that after the reigns of King David and King Solomon, the nation of Israel divided into two kingdoms. The north kingdom, Israel, the south kingdom, Judah. And in 721-722 BC, the army of a major nation-state known as Assyria captured the northern kingdom of Israel by sacking their capital city, Samaria. And they took all the people and drug them away into exile into the Assyrian Empire. Now in those days, the custom was to take other people from other nations that you've conquered, grab them, assimilate them into your culture, and then plop them into the newly conquered places so that they can bring about the culture of Assyria. Assyria was known as a very, what's called, syncretistic culture, where they combined tons of different gods. And these combined religions formed into one big conglomerate religion, if you will. For the people of Israel, who were supposed to be in an exclusive covenant relationship with only their god, Yahweh, this was a little bit of a problem, you might see. And 2 Kings 17 picks up in the historical story with this in mind. This is what it says in 2 Kings 17. It says, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutah, Ava, Hamath, and Seravaim, placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession in Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them. And behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities in which they lived. Assyria viewed the God of the Jews, Yahweh, as a tribal God, a regional deity. And many of their people that they had sent to Samaria were getting eaten by lions. I guess they had a big lion problem in those days, right? We have skunks, they have lions, right? And so the lions were eating all their people. And so the Assyrians assumed, 
well, the local tribal God, Yahweh, he must be pretty upset. And we're not worshiping him well. So let's send a priest back. Let's send one of the Israelites back, and he'll teach everyone how to worship correctly. So this new group of people that was ethnically Assyrian and Babylonian, and you fill in the blank, from around the conquered Assyrian Empire, they came and started to learn from just the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And as a nickname, the Samaritans called those first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the truth. Okay, That's what they called the Pentateuch. And it's all they used to worship. By Jesus' day, this group was viewed as ethnically impure. To use the very politically incorrect term I don't like, they viewed them as half-breeds, part Jewish, part not. Right? I know that's a terrible term, but you can understand now the, the view that they had of them. They also were not in line spiritually with the rest of Judaism because they did not accept any of the writings or the prophets that came after Deuteronomy. Now you add to that the fact that the men looked down massively on women as inferior, and add to that the fact that we find within our story that this Samaritan woman has had multiple husbands, multiple divorces, and is now living in fornication with her current partner. All of this caused her to be seen by the surrounding people, especially the Jews, as unclean. All of this makes it extremely odd that Jesus would engage her in conversation. Nevertheless, she has this interaction with Jesus near this place called Jacob's Well in a town called Sikar. Everybody say Sikar. Now you need to remember that location because it's very important. We'll get to that in a minute. And Jesus begins the discussion by employing language that seems to go right over the woman's head. Look at verse 9. What does he say there in chapter 4? Verse 9, he says, uh, she says to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then Jesus answers her in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from the prophets. Living water is another name for Yahweh, for the Lord himself. But this is going right over her head. It's like a bad Abbott and Costello who's on first, right? She's going, what? I don't, just give me water. I'm thirsty. She's staying completely in the physical realm. But then Jesus says something that suddenly shifts the conversation into the spiritual. He makes this comment about her marital status that she holds in deep secret and shame. An amazing counseling trick that Jesus uses. He exposes shame and yet loves her in the midst of it. I guarantee he looked at her with care and not distrust, not anger, not with shame. And we know this because that she held this kind of shame because she's coming to the well at the noon hour, the hottest part of the day, when no other women, no other people would be there. She was operating in shame. And when Jesus accurately states her hidden root of shame and shows kindness to her in the midst, she switches gears and says two statements that if you just read over it, seem a little bit odd in combination. First she says, hey, I think you're a prophet. And then she switches directly and asks the question, oh, by the way, can you tell me where we're supposed to worship? Right? The very same question that we seek an answer for today. Where do we seek the Lord? It's a question innate to humanity. And what will enrich this background and help us understand Jesus' answer is our text from Deuteronomy. So let's pause here in John chapter 4 and let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Turn there with me. We're going to be in Deuteronomy 11, starting in verse 28. Let's read the beginning of our text here this morning. Sorry, that should say verse 26. Verse 26 through 12, 5a. 
Verse 26, see, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. But turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today, to go after other gods that you have not known. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not beyond the Jordan, west of the road, toward the going down of the sun, in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Aravah? opposite Gilgal, beside the Oak of Moreh. For you are to cross over the Jordan, to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God has given you. And when you possess it and live in it, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I am setting before you today. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. The first part of the answer that we seek today comes from this. And what we can know is this. You can write this down. The Lord's chosen place of worship is a question of who is worshiped, not where. I'm going to unravel this a bit for you because that may not make total sense quite yet. The Lord's chosen place of worship is a question of who is worshiped, not where. We can't be completely assured about the woman at the well, and what she means by calling Jesus a prophet. But remember that the Samaritans held the Pentateuch in very high regard. They looked to these passages as their main text. And there's no definite article when she says, I view you as a prophet, so we don't know for sure, but a number of commentators believe that when the woman from Samaria calls Jesus a prophet, she's actually referencing a space in Deuteronomy 18 that we'll get to in a few weeks that talks about how God will send a prophet that will speak what is true. Moses foretells the coming power of the Father God in this prophet. Why don't you turn there with me just so we can see it in Deuteronomy 18. Just go to the right a little bit and look at Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 15. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Skip down to verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? Well, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass, or come true, if it's not true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. If you remember back to John 4, what did the woman say about this prophet? That everything he spoke of me, he he knew what was true about me. 
He said, woman, I know that you've had all these husbands and the one you're with right now, he's not your husband. And she immediately went, wow, this guy is a prophet. Now, whether or not she's saying he's the prophet from Deuteronomy 18, we don't know. She could just be calling him someone in the category of prophet, or she could be saying, you are the prophet, because she then refers and says, wait a minute, are we supposed to be looking for the Messiah, the Christ? Are you him? Two more times in the book of John, people will claim that Jesus is the prophet from Deuteronomy 18. Either way, she then asks a question, considering this man as one who speaks for the Lord, and she has a burning desire, a burning question. Of all the questions she could ask, the next one is this, where do we seek the Lord's presence? Where should we worship? And she refers to and says, uh, we're supposed to worship on this mountain. And it doesn't say in the text which mountain it is, but we know that it's near the city of Sychar. Well, her people, the Samaritans, firmly believed that they knew where to find Yahweh's presence. And they got it from Deuteronomy 11. They got it from Deuteronomy 11 because Mount Gerizim is near Sikar. Mount Ebal is near Sikar. In this seemingly odd command from back in Deuteronomy 11, God tells them to perform this weird ceremony where half the Israelites stand before Mount Ebal, half the Israelites stand before Mount Gerizim, and they're supposed to recommit their covenant faithfulness to the Lord. And the core idea of the covenant was the location of the ceremony. Remember what it says in Deuteronomy 11. Are they not beyond the Jordan, these mountains, west of the road toward the going down of the sun in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arevah opposite Gilgal beside the Oak of Moray? All this took place right here in a spot known as Shechem. You can see Mount Gerizim right there. Right across from Shechem should also be Mount Ebal and Sikar is right next to it. This same place is a very, very important place. You can look at it here. To the left, you have Mount Gerizim. To the right, you have Mount Ebal. You're looking at it and going, Hans, those aren't mounts, those are hills. Looks like Mount Tabor, right? Well, everything in the, uh, in the biblical lands are like that. They kind of blew it up in Scripture to make it seem more important. But that's it. That's Mount Gerizim, and that's Mount Ebal. And in the middle there, you have kind of this mix of a number of towns, including Shechem and Sikar. Now, Shechem is of huge importance to the Jews because it is the place where Abraham first entered into the land of Canaan and entered into covenant with Yahweh, the God that had chosen him. This story in John 4 is happening in the very place where Abraham showed up and said, I worship Yahweh, none of the other gods. And here is Yahweh in the form of Jesus Christ stepping into a conversation with the most vulnerable of society. Once you kind of understand all that, this story becomes alive in a whole new way. This is where Abraham put an altar proclaiming his allegiance and devotion to Yahweh. In the face of all the pagan gods, he said, I'm going to follow Yahweh above everyone else. And we can remember that passage here. This is Genesis 12. Genesis 12, 5 through 8. It says this, And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram asked, uh, passed through the land to the place at Shechem, the Oak of Moreh, which again is the same identifier you'll see there in Deuteronomy 11. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there in Shechem an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, 
And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to Yahweh. Remember that L-O-R-D, it's not capitalized up here, but in your Bibles it is. L-O-R-D, capitalized, has behind it the name Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, and called upon the name of Yahweh. And so this ceremony noted in Deuteronomy 11 and carried out later in Joshua 8, it speaks to a renewal of the covenant commitment of the people of Israel to the God that had already committed to them. And it was particular worship to the one God, Yahweh. The place of worship spoken of in Deuteronomy 12 12 was about the the who being worshipped, not the where. For the Samaritans, though, they took Deuteronomy 11. They took this statement of Gerizim and Ebal, Gerizim being the place of blessing, Ebal being the place of cursing. And they read directly into chapter 12, and they tried to be people that read in context. And they said, hey, the place where the Lord is chosen, it says right above it that it's Gerizim. Let's worship there. They took this text and turned it into a definitive statement on where God dwells. Now, Gerizim symbolized blessing, so that must be where God dwells. And this actually makes a little bit of sense if you think about it. Because right after that begins this section on the chosen place of worship. Look at chapter 12 in Deuteronomy again. You can go back there if you're somewhere else. Go back to Deuteronomy 12 again. Let's read through this again, paying close attention to what's happening in the first seven verses of chapter 12. Give me an amen if you're there. All right. These are the statutes and the rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. See, what's important here is the name that's being worshipped in those places, not so much the places themselves. It says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, Yahweh your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that Yahweh, your God, will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Those that are truly followers of Yahweh, you see, obedient to the covenant, they would need to go to the place where they would seek Yahweh, the name of Yahweh. I like how the NASB translation puts it. It switches the Hebrew a little bit, and I think this is actually a better translation. Not, but you shall seek the place, but you shall seek the Lord at the place, which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. You see, it's about who you're seeking not necessarily the place that you're seeking them. This rendering gets more to the heart of what is being said here. God is clearly stating that he will choose a singular place where his singular people can come worship their singular God. It is a statement of the exclusivity of covenant relationship between Yahweh and his people. It is not so much about the place, but about the one being worshipped. And this is why in Deuteronomy 12.3 it says, you will destroy the name of the idols out of their places, And in 12.5, it says that God's chosen place of worship is the place where he will place his name. So it makes sense that the place of his name is also the place where he dwells and accepts worship. 
What we see throughout the rest of Scripture is that this chosen place of worship, the place he puts his name, is always amongst his covenant people. It's not just some random geographic location. It is always amongst his covenant people. To capture this theme in an easy-to-remember idea, the Bible uses the topic of temple. Everybody say temple. This is the shorthand idea or word for a more robust image. The temple or place of worship is where the dwelling place of God interacts with the dwelling place of man. There's a great Bible project video, if you want to go check it out, called Heaven and Earth. And in it, they use this same topic and they talk about uh, the ideas of heaven and earth using a Venn diagram. This Venn diagram shows it well. Heaven is shorthand for the place where God dwells. It's less about the location and it's more about who's there. Remember that he is spirit. And so when we see heaven spoken of in the Bible, we're not so much thinking of a set location like Idaho or Austria, right? I'm going to go to Orlando this week and then maybe next week I'll go to heaven. That's not, you know, that's not how we think about heaven. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people do, but that's not how the Bible thinks about heaven. It's more describing the proximity to the one who dwells in that space. Earth is the place where mankind dwells in God's created world. And the place where God and man interact is this idea of temple. And we see this throughout Scripture. The first covenant was amongst God and his people, Adam and Eve. And this garden was a place of overlap between the dwelling of God and the dwelling of man. That's why the Garden of Eden was a temple. The next major distinction that is made where God's presence dwells with man is in the tabernacle. This tent that they constructed in the wilderness that Moses and the Israelites built, but God filled with his presence. Notice what it says in Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of God's physical manifestation appears to fill the temple. The same thing happened when Solomon built and dedicated the temple out of hewn stone to Yahweh in Jerusalem. The priests couldn't go in and minister because it was filled with the presence of the Lord. All these images are massively important to us in our study today, answering the question, where does God dwell? Because what was special about these places? If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you kind of go up there and you feel the importance historically, but you look around and you go, I kind of like Bend better. Portland's a pretty nice city compared to Jerusalem. Yeah, we don't have a big gold dome, but meh, right? Was it the physical location? No, it wasn't. These tabernacles were not where God hung out just because they were the place where his kabod, his tangible physical presence on earth, dwelt with his people in loving relationship. They're important not because of the physical geographic location, but because they were where God dwelt with his people. Look, for example, just at the picture, this is a representation of what the tabernacle looked like. It was God in the Holy of Holies within the temple dwelling in the midst of his covenant people. Look at this uh, representation of what the temple looked like. Again, God dwelling in the center of his covenant people, in the center of the land that he'd promised to them, in the center of the world. Right? This was God's desire from the get-go. His desire was to dwell amongst his people. That's how much he loves you and how much he loves me. Look at his statement about the point of the tabernacle in Exodus 25. And let them make me a sanctuary 
that I may dwell in their midst. Not that I may have a home, because guys, I don't think God actually needs a place. In fact, he tells Solomon that. Really? Seriously? You, you need to make a house for me? He says that to, to David and to Solomon. The point was, was to dwell amongst his people. Look at Exodus 29. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. See, the Lord's chosen dwelling place is far less a statement about the spiritual value of a geographical location, the spiritual value of even an event, and far more about a statement of exclusive covenant relationship between the one true God, creator God Yahweh, and his beloved people. If you love me, he's saying, you will worship me and me alone in covenant faithfulness the way I direct you. That's what all of chapter 12 that we've read so far is about. Unfortunately, Moses knew that the tendency of the people was going to be for them to worship not in the way Yahweh called them to, to develop their own ideas about what is worship and what is not, and to take that in a way that they desired. Dear church, if we are not careful, we as individual Christians in the church of 2019 can very quickly follow this same track of discarding what Christ calls us to worship, how he calls us to worship, and coming up with our own ideas. The second thing I want you to write down that we gather from our text today is mankind's sinful response is to slowly but surely stray from worship of the Father. Mankind's sinful response is to slowly but surely stray from worship of the Father. Have any of you ever had an old car where the steering was messed up and the alignment was out of whack and if you just let it go to itself, it would veer you off into a ditch? Has anybody ever had that? Okay, there's like three of us that were poor enough to have had a car like that, right? It starts to go, and what you have to do is you have to constantly turn it back the other way in order to even keep straight. Dear church, that's our hearts. Our hearts will constantly veer us into a ditch if we're not careful. Our hearts innately want to stray from worship of the Father, how he calls us to worship, and take us in a totally different direction. Worship is defined as the way we give worth back to God. And God knows that we will give worth only as it suits us because of our depraved and selfish hearts. He knows that, like the pagans of the day, we will find whatever depraved way we can and somehow call it worship, even if it harms others or does not reflect the heart of God or is shallow and fruitless. One of my favorite, most material examples, because it's right in front of us, it's material and physical. I know it's dealing with money, which is a tough topic, but I have never, ever, ever, ever heard anyone argue for giving more than 10%. I've heard lots of people argue for giving less than 10%. You know why? Because that form of worship will benefit self, right? I've heard lots of people argue for, I don't really need to go to church that often. I've never heard people argue for, man, we should go to church like three times a week because one will benefit self. We will always stray to a place where we will figure out a way of worship that is not what God's asked us to do, but what we want to do. And the how and where and when we worship, as I said in the first point, it's not the main thing. But it is important in that it eventually affects the who we worship. Because if we start to stray in our worship, we will find that we are worshiping ourselves. You see, the fact that Moses is proclaiming that the creator God desires to have one place in which his people will seek him 
is in direct contrast to the pagan ideal of worship, which is worship whenever, however, wherever you want. Take a look there at Deuteronomy 12, starting in verse 8. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. In verse 4, Moses said, You shall not worship the God as the pagans. What did they do? Well, remember that the pagans were fertility worshipers. And the prosperity preachers of the day, they were the ones who said, man, if you do this a certain way, God will reward you with wealth and health. And so they developed worship in ways that seem right to them. Hills, they seem closer to God, so let's go worship there, they thought. Tree groves, they're nearer to God's nature, let's go worship there. Well, let's worship in those tree groves through orgies and perverse sexuality in a way that'll get us God's favor because they're a fertility God. They just started to come up with random stuff in their head. All of these contrary to God's heart. And slowly but surely, the refusal of the people of Israel to remove this form and location and philosophy of worship led to them eventually worshiping those false gods themselves. And this seems nutty to us looking at it from the outside, but you have to remember the Bible covers a long period of time. And slowly but surely, there is a slow fade into idolatry. And it's an easy excuse Lo and behold, we find Israel worshiping these same false gods in the midst of their own temple. Take a look with me at this next slide here in 2 Kings. This is 2 Kings 17, 9 through 11. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. Question, can you do anything secretly against the Lord? It's so funny being a parent now, I never really fully understood how much I tried to hide things from God until I saw my kids trying to hide things from uh, their mom and me. We can't hide things from God. And unfortunately, they tried. And so what did they do? They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram. If you don't know what those are, those are poles uh, that were uh, basically a representation of the goddess Asherim in all her sexuality. And for worship, uh, women would dance naked around those poles, right? Uh, you might think, oh, that's something we invented. No, it's been around for a very long time, right? Literally, that's what they did, okay? Hans, you're so not, not a good pastor. No, that's, that's true. It's, it's true. That's why, that's why we have it is because it's perverse sexuality, Okay. And so they went on every high hill and under every green tree, and there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. Unfortunately, this inability to stay true to Yahweh in his covenant relationship and the idolatry that ensued is why God's glory eventually had to leave the temple. He couldn't sit 
in his glory among the perverse idolatry. Israel didn't want to stay in exclusive relationship and fellowship with Yahweh through obedience. So God removed his presence and the temple, it became just an empty shell, just another building. At that point in the story of Israel, God's Shekinah glory no longer dwelt in the temple and the people, they were taken off into exile. And this was the turning point for Israel because even when they returned and tried to rebuild the house of the Lord, they knew that the former glory was greater than the present glory because God's glory was not dwelling there. The book of Ezra, it says that the older people that were there for the first temple, they wept because they saw that the former glory was passed away. Mankind's innate sinful response is to slowly but surely stray from worship of the Father into idolatry. And this is what happened in the story of Israel. And again, dear church, it's what happens to us if we will not endure in true worship of the Lord as he has commanded us. But God was not done with his desire to be one with his people. In spite of their sinfulness, in spite of their rebellion, he decided to act. And so in the midst of this rebellion, God sent his Messiah, his son, Jesus Christ. And we are told that a new temple finally arrived, one that carried in its midst the fullness of the glory of God. And this glory is what our text from Deuteronomy is looking forward to. Turn with me to the book of John. I know I'm taking you on a whirlwind tour of Scripture, but you guys love the Bible, so this is good. Turn to John chapter 1, and we'll take a look at this new temple that arrived on the scene. I'm right. You guys love the Bible, right? All right, good. I can always tell when somebody comes uh, from another church because one of their first comments is, you used a lot of Scripture today. And my response is, well, you get used to it. John 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skip down to verse 14. And the Word, which we all know is speaking of Jesus Christ in the flesh, the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What we see here in, that, uh, in the place where the name of Yahweh was placed, the place of true worship, was his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, this is the main point for today. True worship of the Lord is found only in Christ. True worship of the Lord is found only in Christ. And write that down. This word dwelt in verse 14, we jump over it in the English. But in the Greek, it's eskenosin, which comes from the root skenoo. It literally means to encamp. More literally, it means to tent. To tent amongst us. Now the author John, writing in Greek, is trying to tell the reader that at that point that Jesus was and is the new tabernacle. He's the new temple. He was now and forever will be the place where heaven and earth, God and man, collide. And this is why, as you move forward in John, you can see what Jesus' first action was the second he steps into the, new t- into the old temple. Take a look at John 2.13. 
Just a little bit to the right, John 2, 13. Jesus shows up at the temple and what does he do? First thing, does he fall down and worship? No. 2, 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Why does he do this? Because he's the new temple. He goes into an empty shell of a building and clears it because he's the temple. And he's establishing that fact. So the Jews say to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. What was he referring to there? His own body. Destroy uh, destroy this this temple. First, he's talking about the main temple, the old temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. But he's talking about himself. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. They're stuck on the idea that he's talking about the old temple. It's taken 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, Jesus knew, and John was trying to tell this in this story right off the bat in John 1. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus went into the old temple to cleanse it and let the Jews know that God no longer dwelt in that temple. He now dwelt physically in his son, made flesh amongst us. Look at how the author of the gospel of Mark records this same event. Later, when he's being tried, Jews step up and say, we heard Jesus say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, created. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands, his resurrected body. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that when mankind had rejected God's desire to dwell amongst us and be our God, the Father God loved us so much that he sent Jesus Christ in the flesh into the world to bring his glory amongst us one more time. And in that fleshly body, Jesus went to the cross to pay the price for our idolatry and our refusal to worship God as he deserves. He became the blood sacrifice that was killed to cleanse us from the defilement of worshiping however we want and whomever we want, which only actually leads to worshiping ourselves above God. Three days after his death, Jesus rose again in a new body, a body that uh, not created, but resurrected, a body not of this creation, the perfect temple. And he entered into heaven in perfect worship in the presence of the Father, into the heavenly temple, so to speak, and interceded for you and for me so that we too might be enrolled in the covenant people of God, so that we too might dwell with God by faith. You see, in Jesus, God has now placed his name once for all. And there is no other place that one can find the dwelling of the Lord. This is why Peter said in Acts chapter 4, he said, this, is the st- this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Brothers and sisters, there are no multiple paths to the Creator God. There is one way and one way only. Jesus 
the Christ. And Paul wrote to the church at Philippi in Philippians 2.9, he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Jesus Christ alone, we find the place where Christ has chosen to place his name. And our whirlwind tour of Scripture today takes us from Deuteronomy 11 and 12 and shows us that they were pointing forward to the place where the Creator God would once and for all place his name and choose to dwell amongst men in the midst of the new and better covenant. And one day when Christ returns to rule and reign among men in physical body, this desire of the Father will be complete to dwell amongst his people. The book of Revelation tells us this, that this day is coming when God will again dwell among his people. Are you looking forward to that day? Man, I'm looking forward to that. Every moment I look at the news, every counseling session I have, every story I hear of brokenness in this world, I think, God, I can't wait until the moment where you dwell with us and fix this mess. God will dwell amongst us. And this is what the book of Revelation points our eyes towards. It says in Revelation 21.3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And in that same chapter, we see that we will no longer need a temple because God himself will fully dwell with us. This is Revelation 21, 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. But until then, brothers and sisters, We exist in this odd in-between time, don't we? No physical temple and no physical Jesus. So for us today, we must realize that this is why Paul so often uses the phrase, in Christ, to describe the Christian. One who is saved and forgiven by God based on the atoning work of Jesus is in Christ, within the temple, part of God's people. We are those who have been adopted by the Father, and we, you, have taken on his name, the name of Christ. Revelation 22.4 gives us great uh, imagery of this, because it says that the saints, you and I, those that follow Jesus, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Contrary to the mark of the beast, which will be the mark for those who follow the pagan ways of the world, we will have the name of Jesus Christ on our forehead. Can I ask you this morning, do you feel like you are the son or daughter of the Most High God? Do you feel and know that he has given you his name? The Bible says that we are adopted into his family. And I love the picture of adoption because you take on the name of your father. Many of you in here, I think you struggle with your walk because you have not realized that your new identity has already been born and you are a child of the Most High King. His name is already written on your head, already written on your heart. And we simply have to walk in that. Brothers and sisters, visitors, as we gather on this, the Lord's day, to be reminded that God is worthy of true worship, I want us to really truly take stock of the idea of whether or not we worship God as he deserves. We're going to be stepping into a time of worship here in a little bit. And I want to challenge you, especially the men in the room. Do you sing? Do you give worship to your king? 
or are you too cool for school? The reality is, is worship of self will often lead us to not give worship that's due to God. Insecurity of self will often give worship to self rather than worship of God. And worship, and to worship him, to worship God is only possible through faith in his son's death and resurrection. If you desire to worship the creator but have wandered away from a loving devotion and obedience to Jesus Christ, or maybe you've never had a relationship with him at all, today is the day of your salvation. Today is the day to realize that worship of the creator God comes only through Jesus Christ. And so if you want to walk with him and learn what it is to be in Christ, I would love to speak with you after service in the back. Patrick will be back there, our other elder and myself. We'd love to talk with you about that. Well, we could end here and be, be focused on Jesus, but let's wrap it all together now by turning back to John chapter 4. Just a little bit to the right, John chapter 4. And take a look there at verse 23 and verse 24 and look at what Jesus says to us because it's really easy for us to say, great, we're in Christ, we worship Jesus. But I don't know about you, but when I leave things in just kind of this metaphorical sense, it's ambiguous, I kind of walk out of service going, man, I need to touch something. I need to have some kind of direction, some kind of application. And what Jesus does here is he takes this starting question of where do we seek the Lord? And and we get the answer of great, it's in Christ because God has placed his name in Christ. He's the one that we follow. But again, what is the physical, tangible way we take that? Well, we look to the question that the Samaritan woman asked to begin, where do we worship? And look at what Jesus says there in verse 23. He says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We now have enough understanding to be able to answer the Samaritan woman. It's Jesus Christ, the one standing before you. She asks if the, this man that she perceives to be a prophet of God, if Mount Gerizim is the proper location or Jerusalem is. And Jesus answers her here. He says, true worshipers of the Father will worship in truth. Remember, that was the nickname given to the Pentateuch. Yes, you're you're partially right, he says. But also, they will worship in spirit. The thing he's trying to tell her here is the last thing I want to show you today. This is my last point. Number four, the Lord's chosen place of worship is still amongst his people by his spirit. We don't have a physical temple. We don't have a physical Jesus amongst us. And so for us, in our very tangible world, we need something to grab onto. We need to understand what that is. And this is the answer. The Lord's chosen place of worship is still amongst his people by his spirit. You see, when Jesus took his place as our intercessor and perfecting sacrifice, seated and enthroned at the right hand of the Father, Jesus then sent forth his Holy Spirit not ambiguously into every tree and rock. That's panentheism. That's false. It's paganism. But he sent his spirit specifically into the midst of his new covenant people, what we know as the church, so that we might worship him as he commanded. The primary job of the person of the Holy Spirit is to join us to the Father by the blood of Christ and to join us to one another as members of Christ's body. And so Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and we await the day when Christ himself will again be the temple in the midst of his people. But again, the question is, what do we do until then? Well, this is where I love the Apostle Paul, because he connects the dots for us 
and helps us understand what Jesus meant when he said we are to worship in spirit, right? I think a lot of us today, we hear this and we go, we got to worship in spirit. Okay, well, I'm not the person who's going to swing from the chandeliers. Is that what you mean by spiritual? I'm not the person who falls down on my knees. Is that what you mean by spiritual? I don't do well with dimly lit rooms and candles. Is that what you mean by spiritual? And we take the idea of spirit and turn it into a method. But what Jesus is referring to is something different. And Paul uses this phrase, temple, which we've become familiar with today, four times to help us understand where the current dwelling place of God connects with the dwelling place of man. And what we'll find is that that is in the midst of God's new covenant people, the church. Let me give you four verses here that the word temple is used to speak of where God currently dwells in this time period known as the church. Look at 1 Corinthians 3.17. You can write that down. I'll give you four of them in a row, and then I'm going to talk about them for just a sec. First, it says in 1 Corinthians 3.17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Okay, he's writing to who? Who's he writing to here? Quiz time. It's in 1 Corinthians. So he's writing to the local church at Corinth. Guess if that you is singular or plural? It's plural. Next, he writes in 1 Corinthians 6.19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Oh, yeah, that's right. That's why I work out. No, that's not what he's talking about. This is not a verse about working out, okay? Or do you not know that your body, remember, another name for the church is the body of Christ, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. Guess all those yous in that, including the your body, are they singular or plural? They're all plural. You can go look it up. 2 Corinthians 6.16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them, walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. We and they, pretty easy to figure out. Is that singular or plural? Plural. Ephesians 2.19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's speaking about the growth of the church here. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. What's being joined together? You and me in unity of the Spirit. Your church, in all of these, the pronouns that are used to describe the you is plural. You, plural, are the temple of the living God. And who is that you that Paul is writing to? It's the local church of Corinth, the local church of Ephesus. You see, guys, back in the day, if you wanted to go and find the dwelling place of God, you would go to the temple in Jerusalem. There was no other place. But because God is now ministering to the Gentiles in addition to the Jews, he has dispersed his spirit but there's still only one place you go. No matter if you're in Corinth or Ephesus or Salem or Portland or Ouagadougou, you go to one place. You go to the temple of the living God. And what is that temple of the living God? It is not a church event. It is not a gathering service. It's not even a Sunday morning. It is the people that make up that local church. It is the relationships that make up that local church. It is the life lived together by a people that are devoted to one another and avowed to one another in their vow to Jesus Christ. When we look at Deuteronomy 11, it is hinting 
at one physical geographic location that will be the place where the sacrifice is performed, where the tithes and contributions are given, where rejoicing in God's goodness occurs and where the people would take part in a meal together from that sacrifice. But what a full reading of Scripture shows is that that one physical temple by Jesus' sacrifice and by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it makes it so that it's no longer limited to one geographic location, but it is now wherever God's Spirit dwells amongst His people in the local expression of His body, the church. Still only one place, just dispersed into many different geographic places. And so when we come together on Sundays, we do the same things that are talked about there in chapter 12. We take of tithes and offerings. We rejoice together in worship. We learn the Lord's word and we celebrate the sacrifice of Christ through a communion meal, just like they talked about in Deuteronomy 12. And we do it together. And in so doing, we participate in the Lord's chosen place of worship where he has placed his name among his new covenant people, the church. Dear brothers and sisters, we live in a day and an age where the church holds little importance. As I've said before, we have developed an idea unknown to the apostles of the cloud church. It's ambiguous. You don't actually need a place to plug in. You just kind of generally exist, kind of like your Word document does in the cloud. But see, even the cloud needs physical servers where that lands. And every brother and sister in Christ needs a physical place that they land. We live in a day and age when being part of the local expression of Christ's body is seen as an unnecessary extracurricular activity of the Christian. We have other things. We have parachurch ministries. We go to Christian schools. We, We have Christian connections. But dear brothers and sisters, that is not, it is not the church. Or worse yet, We may not see it as an unnecessary extracurricular activity, but we see it as a spectator sport for those that attend on a Sunday. I'll go, I'll listen, I'll take what I like. What I hope and pray from today's word is that it will open our eyes to the immense importance, the beautiful picture, and the necessity of participating in the local expression of Christ's body as obedient followers of Jesus Christ. And I know, dear church, that I am speaking in large part to the choir. You guys have grown in such devotion to one another. I love being part of this body because you recognize how important it is to be part of a church. Today, I want us to recognize and apply the truth that true worship of the Creator is found only in Christ. And the celebration of that fact is performed only amongst His people, the church in spirit, and in truth. Can we worship in our car, in nature, in our morning devotions, in those parachurch groups, in our our dorm groups that study the Bible together? Absolutely. Don't hear me saying those are pagan or that those are wrong at all. Christ needed his times alone with the Father. Christ needed his times in small groups. In fact, all of life is supposed to be worship for the Christian. But Christ also knew that it was a priority to to be amongst those who worshiped in spirit and in truth, amongst those who would be the beginning of the church. That's why the very communion meal we celebrate comes from his gathering of his apostles during the Passover. The New Testament authors, dear church, knew nothing of a Christian that was not a participant in a local expression 
of the body of Christ. It was a foreign concept to them, even though that it is the majority of people who call themselves Christians today. And this is why the author of Hebrews says this. Many of you are familiar with this passage from Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Mission Fellowship, let's be a people that prioritize the worship of our God. And let's respond in a way that shows that we do indeed prioritize it. To many of you this morning, as I've already said, I can say to you in this avenue, well done. You are worshiping him as he deserves. For some of us in this room that sit on our hands and keep our voices down and look at our watch in order to figure out when we can go do the things we want to do when we want to do them, I would suggest to you today that the Lord might be trying to give you some conviction, that he has given you his very life through his son, and your proper response is to praise him as he deserves. For those of you who may not even know Jesus, I would love to talk to you about what it is to be in Christ, to be part of the body, to be part of a local church. If you're visiting today, man, plug into a local church, wherever that might be, and make sure whether it's here or somewhere else, that you're giving worship to the Lord as he has called you to do. I want to finish with a benediction that Paul gives the church at Corinth. And I want you to notice what he says about the Spirit here. He finishes 2 Corinthians with this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's my prayer for this church. That we would know the grace of the Lord Jesus. That we would know the love of the Father and that we would exist within the fellowship of the Holy Spirit.